honey, I'm home. Hey, honey, I need to talk to you about your son. What's up, sweet cheeks? I found something in his room, and I think you should come look at it. Oh, boy, what what, what did you find? J- just come look. Oh, no. I, I guess he is getting of the age. Well, hey, Pops, how's it doing? Johnny, w- w- please sit down. I-, I need to talk to you, son. We All found right. we found this in your room. But, Dad, it's not mine. I, son, you're getting of age. I, you know, I thought we raised you better than this. They're not mine, I swear. I'm holding on for, for a friend. Son, we understand that getting to this age, there's only one thing on a young man's mind, and that's starting a shrimp tank. We just worry that you might be exposing yourself to all kinds of diseases by ordering from those other guys. I mean, this is a shrimp shack household. You should be ordering shrimp from Joe with promo code Aquarium Guys at checkout to save 15% just like we taught you. I'm so disappointed. JoeShrimpShack.com. Keep your children safe. Also, don't forget about our friends at the Ohio Fish Rescue. You can find the Ohio Fish Rescue in their YouTube channel. They have a great YouTube channel. They do multiple videos each week, and they need your love and support. They do rescue mass amounts of fish. Again, Ohio Fish Rescue, they have their Patreon and donations right on the YouTube page. Hey, guys, just a reminder, we have the results for the Tandon Aquatics giveaway. Congratulations to Dale Duvall, who will be taking home his very own custom tailored Enigma pet for a $60 value, courtesy of Scott Feldman and our friends over at TandonAquatics.com. All right, guys, let's kick that podcast. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys Podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. This week, I am super proud and excited to get another podcaster that's about fish this time on the podcast. We have Scott Fellman. He is the host of a podcast called The Tint with a period at the end because that's just the way to do it. And the it's grammatically uh, correct. Right. The C <laughs> is like a sentence. The the tint period. That's it. And the CEO exactly. of Tenant Aquatics at tenantaquatics.com, Scott Fellman. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you guys? We are sublime. You know, I had uh, I had a lot sub- of sugar. Sublime. My what is sublime? Not, not the band. The right oh God! No. I, I found out from the band it was actually a description of content. Yeah, we're so. more like Ariel Speedwagon. Is that keep on loving you? All right, yeah, right there. Well, I'm your host, Rob Zolson. <laughs> I'm Jim Colby. I'm Adam on the Shire. So and I'm Scott Feldman, the guest. Yeah, you're Scott Feldman, the guest. <laughs> Scott Feldman. See, that's why we start with you and then go to the riffraff later. <laughs> I can't get edit that out. Right <laughs> no, no, that's going to gonna stay alive. <laughs> that's the best stuff, man. We leave in this yeah, stuff. There you go. So to, to start off with news and updates, before we uh, do a deep dive here with Scott Feldman, number one, we're doing something new. We've had plenty of people ask us to, uh, to live stream the podcasts. So what we're doing in an attempt to test this, there's a new feature in Discord. And the feature is video. So what I did is I opened up a chat in Discord. And if you haven't joined our Discord, it's a fun chat client. All of our dearest fans are in here. And what we're doing is we're doing these podcasts. From now on, we're going to do them live. Um, We're not going to upload the recording of this live. We're still going to completely post the podcast edited. But if you want to come hear the uncensored version, you can only hear it live in Discord for now until we get this uh, up on YouTube. And even if we do it YouTube... We're not going to have a recorded copy. We're going to delete the copy right after we finish live. So come join us, AquariumGuysPodcast.com. Bottom of the website, you'll see the Discord information. Certainly come and join the party. We have a list of growing people. And we actually got uh, ourselves all on webcam and even seeing Scott here. It's nice to have a face-to-face Girl over figure. this whole COVID thing, right? He's a good-looking man. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. How much did my mom pay you for that one? Well, the checks in the mail, she said. Checks in the oh, mail. Okay. Rob, Rob's mom pays everybody. Yeah, yes. she does. <laughs> Rob's Deep mom. Deep pockets, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not going to take the bait on that one. No, do it, because it's well worth <laughs> yeah, it. Oh, boy. Every time somebody sends us a nice compliment on, on Discord, it's always signed by Rob's All right. mom. Since, since we're in the line of compliments here, Jimmy, I am looking over, and you are wearing some delicious new test wag. I have a new shirt that I bought for the Minneapolis show that did not happen because of COVID. Yeah, we're, we're kind of sad. It's getting rescheduled. So once that's all over, we will uh, certainly bring this down. But you're wearing a shirt, and I, I swear to God, it says it's a throat punch kind of day. It is a throat punch kind of day, and I'm glad I got here early just to you know get limbered up. You know, he talked to his PR people, and they're like, we need to uh, monetize your asshole slogans. So uh, I'm glad you finally did that, buddy. Yeah, Get Her Done was already taken. Unfortunately. Well, I think I've duped our clothing line. So at the bottom of our podcast, AquariumGuysPodcast.com, we have a merch store. And we sold, when we started it, we sold a bunch of stuff. And then I had the audacity to go on the podcast and say, once we hit X orders, I'm going to put on an Aquarium Guys crop top and post it to the public. And then suddenly, since then, we have had a whopping total of two T-shirts. <laughs> people, people have seen you, and nobody wants to see you. They're like, uh-uh. We, no one needs to see that, and no. now our sales went down the toilet. You so. should have you offered uh, drugs and cash. That would have been better. Right. So I'm doing some homework, seeing if we can revitalize the line. And I promise you, no more crop top. That is over. But uh, we got some art uh, artists, and I need to talk uh, talk with them to see if we can get a new line of logos and shirts. And I swear that this shirt's going to be part of it. I think it should be. I often have to threaten people on this podcast because certain people, no names, Rob. No names. And Adam need to be punched in the throat because you guys just don't pay attention or you start squawking off about me being old. So, you know, it's just much easier than, than having t-shirts that I'm going to kick your butt. Well, then quit telling me I need to take Metamucil before the podcast. You should. You run it over. <laughs> I'm regular enough. Thank you. So now to get down to the actual brass tacks and news. So. We have many different ways you can contact us for questions, and we have Facebook, we have our Discord site, you could email us, uh, you can call us even, and we have a few different messages today. I have on Facebook someone message us directly and asked us a question about their cichlid. Hi guys, I haven't had much luck diagnosing what looks to be black ick on only one of my cichlids. For two to three weeks, just one spot in the inner fin, now it looks like it's more of the around spreading around to the bottom jaw, no sign of affecting the f uh, any other fish or of any kind. It's hard to answer without pics. So, of course, I asked him for pictures. And it kind of looks like, I don't know if you uh, guys have ever fished for, like, sunfish. First thing perch. I thought of. It looks like that black spot uh, disease. Now, that whole black spot is a, is a benign parasite that you can easily cook out of meat. The, even the Minnesota DNR, you know, has no warnings about it whatsoever. It's been there for decades. And that's a whole cycle, supposedly through birds and whatnot, that it has to have a cycle out in nature. So having it in the aquarium can happen, but rather rare. So the fish that he has here um, looks to be completely healthy and has vivid color. There's no issues other than a few black spots. So a lot of times that you'll see is if it's not a parasite, it's a um, overconsumption of sp uh, spirulina, the stuff that you use for babies. Really? What is the causative effect of that. I mean, Apparently, if you have too much in the diet, maybe it's some sort of vitamin, and it sh starts showing black like spots on it. Or it's but like oh. a pigmentation deal. So when they have a, a lot of cichlid pellets have a high, especially the plant-like cichlid pellets, because there's a lot of protein-based uh, cichlid pellet formulas out there, they have a lot of spirulina. So check your, check your food. If that's happening, you know, and it's happening only to a couple fish, 
see if you can rotate your food. Do a couple different varieties and see something you have something low in spirulina instead of higher. And you'll see different content ratings in the back of your jars. That's my best guess as to this. It looks exactly like that symptom. Again, the fish is normal, happy, healthy, and eating. So, yeah, check the check the back of your can, ladies and gentlemen. I was going to say that the first thing when you when you said about that about the parasites, and I remember uh, as a child back in the eighteen hundreds that um, my dad would say that those you fish have worms. Eighteen hundreds. Yeah, there you go. Okay, who's getting punched in the throat now, Adam? <laughs> it's t-shirt time, baby. T-shirt time. But my my dad used to tell me that yeah, the, those fish have worms and throw them back. It was always during the dead of heat of summer, and like end of July when it was really hot, August. So I don't know. I, I've never heard it, never seen it, but. I mean, the only other thing you could do is maybe add some salt to it, throw it in a frying pan, eat it. I mean, you live your dream. <laughs> eat yeah. in your cichlid. There you go. I've had reptiles. Like I've had reptiles with subcutaneous worms. I wonder if you ate them before. That kind of makes me wonder now. No. <laughs> All right. No, if you say if so. I did. No. Although, if you want a fast weight loss thing, uh, hit me up after the show and I'll. Uh, yeah, eat worms. Worm. There you go. So, again, thank you for that question. Uh, I'll do your first name, Jameson. We really appreciate stuff like this. And, again, if you guys got your questions, message us in. I have a little bit of news. I have been in contact for a while with Seagrass Farms. And due to this, you know, down slump of orders, um, I got uh, this, the president of Seagrass to agree to get their ichthyologist. It's who they use for disease and infections at uh, Seagrass. It's their, their head guy they've had there for probably over 20 years. They're vet on staff, yep. So we're going to get some information on that. And what we want to do is have a recurring segment on the Aquarium Guys podcast called Dr. Fish. Essentially, it will be every so often, maybe once a month, maybe twice a month, um, maybe less. We don't know exactly the rotation, but we want them on a regular basis to answer fish health and aquarium questions. Who better than having an expert or ichthyologist on here to you know, tell you which uh, medications, how to use them best, what to look for, how to best sterilize, any health questions that you so have to give an actual vetted expert? in the field uh, a crack at it and what we're doing is on discord we have a entire channel dedicated to these health questions and we have gathered a bunch but if you have your special question that you want to be heard in front of dr fish himself certainly go to aquariumguyspodcast.com bottom of the website click discord and add it to our list we have a fantastic list and no none of them asks about if what happens when Jimmy's Viagra falls in the aquarium. I don't need Viagra. I'm very virile. If you say so. I don't. Hey, and also, if you if you do know the answer to this question, please feel free to send it to us. We can forward it to everybody. That's what we started this podcast for, is to share information best as we can. So if you out there know about these black spots on this cichlid, let us know. Uh, make something up. We don't care. We'll, we'll broadcast anything. What the heck? We have uh, truth filters in our Discord. Oh, do we? <laughs> don't worry about that. All right, so the next one is actually a voicemail. They called in, and our telephone number is actually on the bottom of the Aquarium Guys website as well. What it is, it's a voicemail where people can call in and leave an audio question. Yeah. Now, this hasn't been utilized a lot. Uh, some podcasts are strictly you know, live air questions. We prefer the recorded. We get them on voicemails occasionally. Some of them come in too broken to play in the podcast. We got one that was particularly weird, and it's more of a statement than it is a question. Someone apparently is a diehard fan of Adam. Adam, yeah, and I, I, think, uh, I think this is very flattering if you, so, if you uh, ask me. We got no name on it. Without further ado, here is that voicemail. I never knew that a Minnesota accent could be so sexy until I heard Adam's voice. 
That's all. That that's that the was entire it. voicemail. That was it, man. That was like a drive-by shooting, wasn't it? It was. It's beautiful. Man, I think that's full of shit there. No, no. <laughs> that it, was literally a literally a message that we, we got last week. We've been holding it until this time right, right now. There. It's quality. So Adam, tell your mom thanks. Yes. And your Minnesota accent I, is so so sexy. sexy. So sexy. I gotta it's play sublime, it. as you would say. Sublime. I gotta play it one more time. Ready? Oh, do it. I never knew that a Minnesota accent could be so sexy until I heard Adam's voice. Oh, my God. See, I wish Adam's webcam was working right now because I just figured that, you know, sexy brown face of his all red will be all beat red by now. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, I'm just saying that. Adam's got a fan out there. We know that Jim has hardcore fans. He's got this big fan base. I call him Arnold Schwarzenegger in Discord. Now we got people calling in saying that Adam's voice is super, super sexy, and clearly no, they do it for him. No, it's so, so, so sexy. sexy. You know, where's my fans? I, where's the Rob's love? All right. Call in. Let, let you know how much love. you hate me, love me. <laughs> I just, I feel a little out of the loop here. Oh. Must be nice, gentlemen. It is fun riding, driving the turd wagon, isn't it? It must be nice. <laughs> so, uh, Adam, um, what, what, do you have anything to say to your fans yeah, out there? Send her back some love, Adam. Do it. I I don't think that this was a fan. This is probably Rob's hundred percent. I'm I'm not joking here. No, it's it's a fan. My my voice well, is extreme. My wife's voice is extremely raspy. She cannot do anything like that. She's got a broken vocal cord, dude. Because I punched her in the throat. Oh. <laughs> No, I did not punch her in the throat. You set him up for that. You yeah, I know. You did. Okay, I don't understand. How do I have? How do I, as the Egyptian out of the the three of us, have the most Minnesota accent? Well, I have a theory on this. I think it's because you have the Yabetia blended in with it, and that's what makes it just work for her. It probably comes from all the oh. kabucha he eats. <laughs> oh God! You drink kombucha every well, time. Whatever. Every time you say the word kombucha, I just smell filthy hippie. <laughs> <laughs> it smells. We could like, just we could just call it booch. It smells like a Volkswagen Beetle from 1969. Oh man. Well, you know, we got some more, but I'm gonna spread them out. You know, we we got questions and whatnot. But um, at the beginning of this podcast, again, because we're recording this ahead of time, when this airs, um, we'll have Scott recorded already uh, grabbing a winner. So this was uh, pre-recorded. Oh nice. But number one, we want to thank you for that. Uh, you know, sweepstakes, and just to remind people about it. You gave away a, a brand new car, Enigma Explorer Pack, <laughs> a collection of leaves and goodies to add the perfect tannins to your aquarium. And before we dive into the entire tannin conversation, I just want to thank you for that and then explain that product a little bit before we go too far. Well, what it is is <clears throat> without getting too commercialized, I mean, my company offers, we offer a variety of materials that you could pick yourself uh, from our selection. But what a lot of people like is they'll, they'll send me a, a message saying, hey, Scott, I have a you know, a South American tank I'm doing or I'm doing an Indian biotope or whatever. Can you pick me some appropriate botanicals from your selection to accomplish that? And so what we do is we you know, look at what we've got. We go into it. I, I geek out like any fish geek would. And I choose things that I think are appropriate for the tank. And we put that collection together for you, wrap it up in a little, little uh, paper bag, put it in a box, send it out to you. And that's kind of a mystery. But the reason I call it Enigma is you don't know what you're going to get until you get it. So you're getting a curated uh, selection just for you. So that's fun. It's one of our more fun products, if botanicals could be considered fun. 
Oh, they are. A hand-curated yeah. tannin kit for your uh, your aquarium. I can't wait to someone after the podcast calls you up. It's like, yeah, I got like this uh, five-gallon beta that. tank. It's got uh, one of those bubble castles in it. What, what do you recommend? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm tired of looking at the bubble castle. Can you make the water darker? And don't forget the clown puke in the bottom. That's the most important part. That works. Pink gravel's good. Right? He knows about clown puke. He does. Wow. We're the only ones that were left out of that. I'm I know. Sure. I've been doing this for 30 years, and I didn't know about clown puke. <laughs> well, Scott, let's uh, let's dive in. So, again, sure. the, the subject, we always try to do these podcasts uh, on a clear subject, and who better to talk to about uh, why we need tenants in our aquarium and why some people think that my mud aquarium shouldn't be like that. I'm right now, I'm looking at my 75-gallon aquarium. I just put this last week a massive log of, like, Malaysian driftwood I, I basically stole from a friend. Nice. And now it's just getting to that, what I consider and you consider, that wonderful, you know, tint point. Yep. Of that tea color going through the whole aquarium. And, yep. you know, explain why we, uh, what tannins are to beginners and why we need them to, to kick this off. Well, tannins are a bunch of a, a, a sort of a broad name for a bunch of different compounds. And one of the characteristics that tannins do is they, first of all, they come from botanical materials or trees, wood, um, soil. Um, tannins are the same tannins you find in coffee or in wine. Um, different tannins do different things. There's literally thousands of different types of tannins. Um, but it's what they also give off are what called humic substances, various chemicals that are known by science to actually benefit fish as far as their health. They're found in all sorts of water. But the stuff we're talking about here today is tannins. Um, that's what provides that color to the water. So you'll see that in uh, in uh, tanks that you use leaves in and that you use wood in. You'll see it in natural environments. Most natural ecosystems are not clear. You know, we have this vision that everything's crystal clear and perfect. The reality is most of you have ever spent time, obviously you're a fisherman, you spent some time in the wild there. Uh, it leaves decompose in the water. Wood falls into the water. It, it gives off tannins and stains the water. Um, tannins can, uh, and can provide some health benefits for fishes, um, resistance to bacterial infections. There's some things that have been studied but there's lots and lots of different tannins. The problem is we don't really have a means to test for like what material gives off what tannins. So we're a lot of times we're just sort of saying, hey, um, the water's brown. There must be some tannins in it. So we're kind of falling back on the aesthetic thing. But there's a lot of scientific benefits. You can Google it and find all sorts of stuff uh, about that and the, meta, the medicinal, potentially medicinal benefits of, of tannins. When you're in the wild, again, no one's having, like you said before, no one's cleaning that out. The leaves fall in. There's mm -hmm. debris. And this, again, tints the water. Now, what exactly, how is that supplemental to fish? Again, we know that it softens pH in a lot of uh, situations. What other benefits? That, that's always the number one that people just think, oh, it just makes my pH a little different. What else does it do to the well, aquarium? First of all, tannins and, and materials like botanicals or leaves can only lower pH in water with little or no carbonate hardness. So like if you're, you know, like the water here in Los Angeles is out of the tap is like 8.4, 8.6. It's stalactites, you know. Concrete. That's why African cichlids and reef aquariums are so popular out here because we have nice hard water. But obviously if you use reverse osmosis or deionized water, um, you have no carbonate hardness. And then it's more malleable. So you can use leaves and catapa leaves, which are Indian almond leaves, and you can use bark and all kinds of things to lower the pH. Um, but generally just throwing leaves in the water won't lower the pH. They will impart that color almost always. Even if the water's hard, you'll get the color. And you will get humic substances, which are, uh, again, found in botanical items, soils, and so forth. 
they're thought to have a broad range of benefits for fish in terms of their health and their ability to uh, maintain uh, uh, various levels of immunity and body chemistry and so forth. A lot of stuff that's highly technical, way over my pay grade, but um, there's a lot of good information on it. Perfect. So I always start out, I wanted to just cover that before we move in because the whole subject, your entire approach is, you know, why we need tannins. And you have this podcast called The Tint where Mm -hmm. you have the long format podcast every now and again with a guest. But what you're known for on that podcast is essentially a audio blog where you're putting Mm -hmm. in brain snippets of the topic that you're reminding people of, of a note maybe they didn't think of. And really why those types of botanicals and what you can do with them and daily reminders. So, again, I just wanted to get that point across so everybody's on the same page. But, Scott, I always start out these interviews with asking, you know, how did you get into the hobby? Oh, gosh. Okay. Like like many of you, I was pretty much born into the hobby. I My dad bred guppies. I was literally probably three or four years old when my dad gave me culls from his, you know, he bred blue delta tail guppies. And so I'd get the culls in little goldfish bowls and I'd you know, fed them and took care of them. And uh, so I, I had guppies. I had an aquarium, you know, before I could read. And then, um, you know, I had my first five-gallon aquarium. I think I was was like four years old. Uh, and I've had a tank in one form or another ever since then. Then uh, later on in my uh, early teen years, I got into saltwater. got into reef aquariums. Um, actually spent a lot of time with reef aquariums, did a lot of writing, um, was on the, the, the lecture tour there. Um, spoke at the Marine Aquarium Conference in North America like eight times. That's a, that's like the Super Bowl of the reef aquarium world. I uh, co-owned a coral propagation and importation company called Unique Corals here in Los Angeles. Um, but always in the back of my mind, I was fascinated by blackwater stuff, by fish. I had South American cichlids and uh, kerosens are my favorite. And so I always wanted to do something with this. I always played with killifish, fishes that came from these black waters with all the tinted stuff. And I played and experimented and then one day I said you know what I don't want to I don't want to propagate coral anymore and much to all my friends horror I sold my interest in that got out and said I'm going to start a company that does nothing but sell all this cool stuff that I've been experimenting with for you know last 15 20 years and so I started a company called Tannin Aquatics and we've been doing it since 2015 and um, it's just been you know it's it's I try to be like what you guys are honest, open, fun. I'll tell it like it is. If I don't know something, I don't know it. I try not to BS it because that's not helping anybody. But I am rather opinionated. Um, I think the aquarium world, well, we can get to this later, but I think the aquarium world is a little too dogmatic. We're a little too set in our ways. And so tannin is sort of a, uh, a punch in the throat, if you will, to conventionality. You know, I try to do some things different. It's not just tinted water, black water aquariums. It's about looking at things different. I do a lot of work with brackish water aquariums, mangroves, mud. I, I would love to hear about your mud aquarium. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, taking a look at nature as it is, as opposed to how we edit it, that's like always been my focus in the hobby. And that's kind of where I'm at today. And we've developed a global following of geeks like me that are into that kind of thing. And it's been really fun to invite people along and we're all learning together. So I think that this is a revitalization. So I'm actually trying to do a bunch of studying on the history of modern aquariums because there's the whole Victorian era of aquariums. The yep. modern era, for those that are listening, and we're going to do a podcast on this as well, it started around the, you know, the ni- uh, 1890, 1910 era. And that's really where it conceptualized, you know, the you, you heard about the whole sea monkey craze that started, you yep. know, was it post-World War II? And, 50s and 60s. Right. Yeah. And it all started as... 
you know, no real pumps, you know, not no real big filtration. There's no way to heat it besides a Bunsen burner on your stone bottom aquarium. And these were direct from nature. They were trying to cut out a slice of nature because if it worked in nature, I can try to recreate it. And since, yep. you know, the modernization past the sea monkey craze when, you know, Metaframe was sold to a toy company, this whole thing spun into a different direction where now we're having filtration, all these modern elements, and we're forgetting the details of how that aquarium is supposed to be a slice of nature. We're starting to see it big in the pond industry that they're doing natural ponds. I spent probably, you know, 10 years studying ponds from koi experts that all they did was sit in their garage talking about their filter systems. It was much less about, you know, how they can make it natural, how they can have, you know, a biological system to remove the waste. And now, you know, this last decade, we're seeing people really move into the aquascaping and from that spins off a craze of slicing nature back into your tank. And now these tenant uh, aquariums are becoming more and more prevalent and you're seeing professional aquascapers really try instead of trying to make it look like, you know, whatever modern scenario they're going at as a literal square slice of nature out of the Amazon. It's really breathtaking seeing what they can do with this. I really want to go back to a beginner's perspective. Most of these uh, aquariums, at least they're trying to start just to get tannins in their aquarium because it helps one soften the pH, add uh, you know those botanical elements like you were speaking about before. But I think this starts out with like the cardinal tetra craze, right? <laughs> you're you're I, smiling no, already. No, I'll go further and say what it's it's more than just the aesthetics. I mean, that's the thing. A lot of people are drawn to the. I mean, for a long time, people thought black water. Or, or tinted water was like, oh, your tank's dirty. Like I had an aquarium in my uh, office at my coral facility, and it was a black water aquarium. I mean, that's you can't get any more opposite of a reef tank than that. But I had one, and people would come in and say, "Dude, when was the last time you changed your filter?" <laughs> people don't understand, and I'm like, "No, that's what that's what it's supposed to look like." And so like, no, check like, the tea bag in the back. Guys. Yeah, suck right, it. It's all that crap on the bottom, like it's leaves. And then after a while, people would start looking at it, and they'd be either mesmerized or they go, "Oh, your tank looks like shit." But I mean, people would figure it out. And if you go and look at natural uh, aquatic habitats, like you're talking about, they're not clean and neat and orderly. And I have a lot of problems with modern aquascaping as the pinnacle of what a cool aquarium is. The word nature or natural has been appropriated by a lot of different factions in the hobby. And it's become a sort of a catch-all for things. I believe what we're doing, and, what, and I say we, I mean people that play with what I call botanical-style aquariums are more in tune with what's going on in nature because we're utilizing real natural materials, leaves, twigs, seed pods, the things that actually fall into the water in some of these environments. Many of the things I get are from around the world. And we're able to replicate to some extent not only the look but the function of these systems. And that's what's so important. In other words, when stuff falls in the water, if you're a beginner, you, you, you know, you could, you're mesmerized by the look, which is great. But when you realize what these materials are supposed to do, they're not just supposed to tint the water or add, you know, an aquascaping look. They're also growing biofilms, which are, you know, beneficial bacteria. They're propagating fungi, which most people freak the hell out when they see this stuff. They're like, what is this gook in my tank? Well, that's what you see. If you look at the underwater photos of uh, habitats like the Igarapes and, and Igapos in South America, that's what happens. There's tons of this biofilm and all this stuff. Fish feed on that. Um, there's even an argument that 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 bacteria maintains water quality. You know, there's, there's a whole lot of interesting stuff going on. It's a very complex biological um, environment. And so that's what I'm fascinated by is with people getting beyond just the look and thinking about the function. And I believe even a beginner 
once they grasp the basics of water chemistry, I'm sure you guys talk about that all the time. You know, it's not just I, I sometimes I cringe when a beginner, you know, sends me an email and says, I'm thinking of starting, I'm just getting into tanks and I want to do one of these tinted black water tanks. I'm like, okay, well, you need to understand the nitrogen cycle. You need to understand maintenance. You need to understand all the basic stuff because what you're doing is basically adding a whole lot of material into your water that's bio load. It's you need bacteria to break it down. So it's understanding that holistic, the kombucha perspective, uh, as, as you might say. You need to understand the whole thing, and, and, and that's the fascination to me. So I can just go on and on, but I'll stop it. The next time you have one of these great aquariums in, in your tank, you should, you should put an old beer can on the bottom and say, that's a, Minnesota, that's a Minnesota one right there. Yeah, keep it going. <laughs> keep it going because, you know, we go out snorkeling, and you would not believe the amount of garbage that you find down there. Or again, you'll find the, the beer The Pabst Blue Ribbon The Pabst Blue Ribbon, the old Milwaukee cans. <laughs> You know, stuff that people will drink, but they're embarrassed to take the empties and throw them in the garbage. No, Heineken or Stella, that's why. Oh, uh, no, we can't afford that. Man, stuff. I got to know, I gotta know this. Can you put aluminum in your tank without having to worry about it? I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I got to talk to some experts I, on I that think, one. I think it's a bad idea, but I, it's just yeah, amazing. Though, you'll, you'll grab one of these, these cans, you know, because when, when I'm snorkeling, if I see this stuff, I grab it <laughs> to throw it away. I pick it up to the shore. And I You're throw hoping it it's not open. You know, well, that's the first thing I check. Maybe it's a full I, I love the moment uh, when we say a... I love the moment where we say slice of nature and Jimmy just goes the bottom of a Minnesota lake with a beer can. Or the beer can, looking for bodies. It's perspective. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what you're talking about is, is the slime, the bacteria. I mean, even on these cans, once you, you take them up in the, in the air and, uh, and you look at them and stuff, you can see all kinds of crazy little things growing on it. Yeah. You know, and, and it's all this part of nature uh, and the bio load and whatnot. I just thought it was very interesting to see. Like, I thought for at one time that – I was grabbing like a, a big rock full of, of moss, but it was just a beer can that was covered in this really crazy looking um, moss, which I'd never seen before. And uh, yeah, I mean, nature, has nature doesn't way. waste anything, right? No. You know, everything becomes a little ecosystem. So right back. Even the can. Even the can. Now, Even the can. The, so what I wanted to spin at is not just, you know, the benefits of having it, but sometimes the need. The Cardinal Tetra has been demanded for many generations we have the neon tetra that's been propagated since the 40s right around right around after world war ii and they finally were able to florida breed them which means they have generations and generations that acclimate over time in a captive environment to higher phs we actually had scott from project piaba yeah we did a whole podcast now make sure you check that out if if you haven't heard that one uh, what a wonderful guy. The entire idea is to try to find renewable ways of harvesting Amazonian species while supporting their their ecosystem, supporting their lifestyle so they don't take away rainforest, so they actually have jobs coming out of it. They found out that floods in the Amazon kill millions of fish a year anyway, so they're taking them out of flood pools that they would die in. So it's a right. sustainable, recurring way of getting these tropical fish out of the wild. But the problem is... The pH in the Amazon in some areas is completely missing anything. Sometimes it's as low as four. When you're bringing all of these wild species in, it not just adds um, benefits to the aquarium. Regards to wild-caught species from the Amazon, tannins are absolutely necessary in some of those acclimation standards when you're trying to not only drip acclimate, but keep a species that's been wild-caught sustainably in your aquarium. The argument is often made that you know, discus have been bred for, you know, since the 1970s in hard alkaline water. And, you know, you can keep neons and breed them in, you know, 7.4. You can. But I just have this thing. And I challenge people. I'm thinking, okay, they've been captive bred for what, maybe 50, 60, 70 generations or whatever over all these decades. 
does that mean that somehow we've bred out their natural ability to adapt to these types of environments that they've evolved under for eons that in only a few generations we've erased that you know genetic programming that says i belong in this type of environment and that we're actually harming them by putting them into you know softer more acidic water i don't think it's necessary to keep fish in you know these types of environments but i think it's beneficial and the other thing that you touched on which was great when a lot of these fishes are wild caught and collected the, the blackwater habitats have very little in the way of bacteria. So these fishes have very little immunity to bacteria and parasites and so forth. So when they come into water that is more parasite-laden, that you know, higher pHs and so forth, with about all these tannins and humic substances, they're more vulnerable. So potentially keeping the wild-caught fishes in this type of a habitat makes sense, at least while acclimating them. Maybe you could ultimately adapt them to better, you know, to, to more tap water-type conditions. But... Uh, I was talking to my friend, you know Mike Tucanardi? I do not. Um, uh, I think I've seen him on your podcast a couple yeah, times. Yeah, Mike's, Mike's a great guy. He's, a, he's an explorer kind of guy. Uh, he's, he imports uh, fishes from South America and all over the world. He said the key to success with a lot of these species when he imports them is to make sure that there's some catapa leaves, which is called the Indian almond leaf, in the water that puts this tannins and humic substances in there. It eases in the acclimation process and keeps the bacterial count low. So there are some tangible benefits that People that handle a lot of fishes deal with. So, yeah, it's important. And you, you mentioned acclimation. That was a really good good point. So the only things you can do, because a lot of these measurements are extremely intangible. We can't right. tell you that it's going to guarantee to put your pH at a certain level if you're from here. There's no mm -hmm. way that we can say on a medication level that it's going to do X. Like you taking ibuprofen is going to stop, stop swelling in your body. It's not, it's not a plug-and-play element. Every scenario is different because everybody's water is different. But yep. in my experiences that I've had, I have plenty of tanks in my basement. In fact, it's getting more and more the more we do this podcast. And I have per, you know, purchased, imported in wild-caught species, uh, farm-bred species. And just, like you said with the discus especially, I've had discus. I have two tanks side-by-side, side, a 125 and a 75-bolt planted, both same temperature, both same uh, time we do the water changes of the same tap. So the mm -hmm. same sand bottom elements. I try to keep them similar. One of them has an epic amount of tannins. The other one doesn't. And, of course, the one with missing tannins, the discus, actually uh, have issues. And I've had, uh, not disease, but a condition that discus get where they go dark and then just eventually die. It's like a stress, it's like a stress reaction. It's like thing. a stress reaction yeah. in that other tank where they just crap out. I actually yeah, moved I one of them. I have one discus um, that was rescued. It was a cull. It's got a um, bent spine. It's beautiful discus, but uh, moved it into my ten uh, tank. And it's the only thing I can keep it in. It has to. It's almost like it has to have tenants because again, same temperature, same water, both planted. It's just crazy. Were they captive bred or wild caught? Do, do uh, these I'm, I'm I'm assuming were actually uh, captive bred. These okay. are captive I mean, bred, and they were. Even, we've had wild, but you know, you know, I just don't think we've bred out the innate need for a certain type of habitat for these fishes, whether it's a physical habitat or a chemical habitat. So I think there's some important things. Of course, you can keep them in, in all kinds of water. Fishes are very adaptable. I saw that with marine fishes and corals. I mean, we used to get corals that would come in in water that was so contaminated and cold because it sat in the airport for hours and hours. You think, how could this be? Life is surprisingly tenacious. Fishes, aquatic life, are, but they do better in their in, in an environment that's more similar to what they evolved under. That's my position. That's my opinion, and I I just think it's worth experimenting with that. And I think that's something that we're starting to see more of. It's beyond just the aesthetics; it's the function. 
So there's some questions that, of course, we have to go over. Number one is we got to talk about, you know, beginners. How do I get yeah. started? What do some of these different uh, tannin producing products, you know, how are they different from one another? So we got to cover that. But first, I, I want to always write down because, again, anything that's intangible like this, we, we know that it cr- helps create bacteria, but we can't, you know, say that in right. your water is going to create this much. So just right. for the people that are listening, because we hear a lot of people talk about tannins, but it always seems like it's some sort of, you know, herbal life pitch <laughs> right. I, I, right i hate right. saying it's, that it's true and, and that's why I, if you read my stuff or come to our website we never say use x amount of leaves per gallon or this because it, there there is no formula for this so i can give you guidelines and say in my aquarium where i use uh, straight up rodi water i use you know five of these leaves per gallon and it gives my ph down a little bit whatever it's not a it's not a science it's as much an art as it is a science and I think it's irresponsible for any vendor, myself included, which I can proudly say I'm five years of doing this. I've never made those types of recommendations because it's irresponsible. And I think when people go on forums and they see these things saying, oh, yeah, I threw a bunch of leaves in my tank. Well, but that doesn't tell you anything. You do need to test the water. You do need to have an understanding of the bio uh, uh, nitrogen cycle. I'll make this guarantee. You'll kill every fish in your tank if you dump a whole lot of botanicals into an existing tank at one time because what will happen is you'll – You'll, your bacteria population won't be able to keep up with all that input and bioload. The CO2 level rises. Your fish will be gasping at the surface and ultimately die. Or you can get an ammonia spike. You have to be – it's common sense as much as anything else. So it, it is as much an art as it is a science. And for beginners, again, I, the thing I stress in us is that you need to do the homework. And this is something I have – maybe you guys are the same way. There's so many good resources out there. Your podcast, this forum – uh, all kinds of forums. There's a lot of junk out there too, but there's a lot of good information if you're willing to di- deep dive. And people have to be willing to do the work. And that, that's something I'm unapologetic about. I mean, we present materials, we give our experience. And my, I have literally hundreds of blogs about all the things you can do and the, the, the good, the bad, the ugly of working with botanicals. But I lay it out there and say at the end of the day, it's your call and how you manage an aquarium. Because you could do everything that I say and still kill your fish if you, if you don't follow the basic tenets of aquarium keeping um, with anything, you know, saltwater. I saw tons of people buy reefs. I had a guy that, this is the true story, he would buy coral after coral from us and, and he would constantly ask for replacements. I couldn't figure out why. Finally, I called him up. I said, you know, dude, you're, every time you place an order, you're killing coral. What are you doing? He's like, I don't know. Maybe my clown loach is picking on them. I'm like, what? Clown He was putting them in a freshwater tank. Oh, God. That's so, a spendy bill oh right God. there. I'm like, that's, I can, yeah, that's I can feel your butthole pucker there, Jimmy. Man, I just fell off the turd wagon. <laughs> yeah, that's a turd wagon guy. But, but I mean, you people, you have to take responsibility. And that's in anything in the hobby. I, I mean, whether you're keeping betas, whether you're keeping discus, cichlids, whatever. You just, there's a lot of common sense that I think people want to – maybe that's the, the, the good and the bad of the, the time we're in where information is so readily available that we just – they want the easy answer. Sometimes you've got to dig for it. The well, thing I love about what we do in the botanical style aquariums, we don't have all the answers yet. You can't measure tan- – you can measure tannins in parts per million. There's tannin test kits. But there's 6,000 different tannins. Nobody knows which one is the one that stimulates the discus into spawning or does this or that. So it's as much an art as it is a science. And that's what's so fun to me about it. It's real open source right now. And so it's a learning curve for even the most experienced people. But there are tangible benefits that people are seeing as a result of using these materials uh, in their tanks, like fish breeding and stuff like that. There's a comment you just said I want to address is that, you know, not just to dump a pile in your tank and watch it crash. The reason being for no. that is people associate ammonia 
you know, fish hit and piss. I mean, that's essentially yeah. what they think about it. You're adding waste to your water. There's the ammonia. But plant matter creates its own form of ammonia. So if you oh, yeah. have a naturally shedding plant or you're putting a ton of leaf litter in your t- uh, tank, you're putting a decaying log. All of it creates its own levels of ammonia, much less, again, and much different type than the, you know, waste you get from the fish. But still, if you're putting it in there, you're risking spiking ammonia. So you have to have a well-established aquarium. You can't necessarily just yep. start uh, start it up with uh, no repercussions and put fish in. You know, add the botanicals in there alone. Start your cycle. Be aware of the extra ammonia and conditions you're adding to that tank. I have a massive planted aquarium. There, It's wall-to-wall. It's stone wall. It's a 125-gallon aquarium tall. And it is top to bottom. I cannot see the back. I cannot see the floor. Packed with plants. So you assume that it would not have an ammonia spike. Well, I had a bunch of shedding plants in there. I mm-hmm. had something was unchecked. And sure enough, my ammonia spiked in that big of a planted aquarium where you know some people don't even try to do water changes. So be aware of what you're putting in your aquarium. Yeah. I just wanted to make that point on that one as, as to why. That's a, no, that's a great point because the, the very few problems I've ever had customers had over the years were all caused by not applying common sense when you're adding anything into your aquarium whether it's plants whether it's like you said uh, 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 plants that shed or but or botanicals or anything when you're adding something in your tank it has an effect on the on the environment especially in established aquariums so it's always best to go slow do water tests gauge the you know just take a look at your tank People think that it, we're in such a society, I think, now, and, and it's creeped into our culture in the aquarium hobby that you just dump something in and it's instant Amazon, and that's what we expect. It's like, no, things have to happen. And the bacteria in your tank have to adjust to the increased amount of material in there. Just like when you add fish, you don't dump 50 fish in at one time. If you do, you're asking for trouble. It's the same thing. It's a living microcosm, an environment, and an environment moves along slowly. You can't just make these huge moves and expect nothing to happen. So, so- yeah responsibility when you talk to people about tenants well it just it makes the water better man and you're not trying to do some weird sales pitch to try to put on the uh, on this a tangible list you know you're doing for measurements that may be intangible for instance it lowers ph we don't know Mm -hmm. by how much but we know it does it so that's a intangible tangible item right so if we could list for listeners especially people that haven't used a lot of leaf litter or you know those old school aquarists that literally don't believe in it i've heard that quite Mm -hmm. a bit Sure. Can you list uh, some of these tangible items that this does for the sure. aquarium? Yeah. Well, number one, you, you mentioned potential impact on pH. Number two, uh, when you put terrestrial materials in an aquatic environment, they recruit bacterial biofilms. These biofilms are little colonies of bacteria and little sugar strands, basically. They not only provide potential food for the fishes, because many fishes do forage on this stuff, they also provide foods for the creatures at the bottom of the food chain, some of the crustaceans, fungal growths. All these things work together to process water, process nutrients, potentially even export nutrients. So you're getting a potential, uh, not only a potential supplemental food source, an onboard food source, you're also getting potential biological filtration, if you will. You're getting a physical component, which is a structural component to the tank. In other words, a leaf litter bed is a natural habitat for many species of fishes. So you're giving them that kind of textural, that depth that they're used to. A lot of these fishes from these South American you know, and Asian streams, they, they hide in leaf litter or they are more comfortable over leaf litter. They go in there for protection, to spawn, to food, for feeding. Fry grow up in there. So you're creating a physical environment uh, as much as a chemical environment. Um, 
food webs are really important in blackwater communities because it's an impoverished environment. There's not a tremendous amount of I'm gonna pause you stuff there. in there. It's, you said yeah. food webs. Explain that yeah. to us because I've heard that term web. that people yeah. – it's they don't understand it at all. Okay, food webs. Well, think about it this way. At the base of a, of a food chain, at the top of the food chain are the fishes. They feed on what? Crustaceans. Some of them feed on well. They feed on actually the, the botanicals and leaves. They cut them up and smash them up and macerate them and eat those. They give off waste. What feeds on that? Smaller crustaceans. What feeds on those? Fungal growths, bacteria, etc. So it's all a big cycle. So food webs are really fascinating. Some of the food is what's called alectonous input. In the jungles, you'll see these trees overhanging you know, streams and stuff and fruit and seed pods fall into the water, which is kind of what we're mimicking in our types of aquariums. There are fishes that actually eat fruit. Like, have you ever seen a picture of like an arowana swimming or a, or a fish like an arapaima, a big, big carousel? They come in, they actually eat fruit, fruit that falls off the trees. The, the, the terrestrial environment influences the aquatic environment. So there's all kinds of food webs. Insects that, like ants, that crawl up on these little branches. Some of them get clumsy and fall into the water. Fishes eat them. When these forest areas flood, what happens is, uh, like you were talking about with the cardinal tetras, uh, they're seasonally inundated by the overflowing rivers and rain. So what used to be just a forest floor becomes an underwater environment. What happens? There's a lot of food. The fish follow the food. So that's the other component of botanical-style aquariums. It's not just influencing the pH. You could do this at a high pH. It doesn't matter. It's about creating a biological system. So it's a little different approach, I think. Just to go over a couple of these, just to go in a little, a little bit uh, tighter on some of these points. So mm -hmm. like that food web you're mentioning, let's touch mm -hmm. – just for fish. Let's say you have placos or, or certain rare placos that you're collecting. Most mm -hmm. of these placos that you get are decavores. They will eat right. protein. They'll eat the fish flake that you'll put in the aquarium. Some people uh, attempt not to feed their placo thinking that they're just going to eat the algae. They do consume some algae, <laughs> but that yeah. is not their main food source. Again, they're eating right. off the random scrap flake that hits the bottom of the aquarium. They do eat yeah. that. And on top of it, they're looking for that decaying material in the tank, the leaves, the wood. That's why, mm -hmm. you know, when you hear from these Placo experts, they always put wood in. That's their go-to thing. Xylophores, yeah. It, wood for them in a breeding situation is much easier to clean. And if they have to sterilize something, they can keep a piece of wood in for a, for a Placo. But in your tank, you're, you're trying to make that slice a home for them. Having that leaf litter, having those alder cones, it goes a long way. I have a 10-gallon tank right now with a bunch of glass uh, placos that are growing out. And the best thing I could have done in there is put in a bunch of you know almond leaves, alder cones, a lot of debris, and they're mm -hmm. ripping it apart. You think, why are they ripping it apart? They're not just using it for homes. They're, they're using it as a food web. And they're eating the creatures that live in there as well as the actual material itself. They're eating detritus. Detritus is another thing that I, I – I have like war on detritus. I, everybody's convinced detritus is bad. Detritus is the end product of the biological filtration cycle. When you think about it, it's demineralized stuff, but it's, it's food for a lot of organisms at the bottom of the food chain and a lot of, chain and a lot of fishes. Um, the other thing that you mentioned that was kind of interesting to me is um, about feeding, supplemental feeding. I've done multiple experiments. I have one going right now with a tank full of Tucano tetras, Tucanichthys. Tucano? They're great, uh, great fish. Another thing from Project Paiba that they have started bringing in now. Yeah, they're fantastic fish. And I have them in an aquarium that is – it's a five-gallon aquarium. I have uh, 11 of them in there. They've been in there for seven months. I haven't fed them. All I have is a layer of leaf litter, decomposing leaf litter at the bottom. I literally haven't fed them. Leaf litter and oak twigs. And so there's biofilms and gunk. These fish are as fat and happy as any I've ever seen. In fact, about a month ago, there was a spawning event. I did not feed them. Now, I'm not the kind of guy that says, oh, I'll just leave the fish alone. I, this was an intentional experiment with a fairly pricey fish, but 
I wanted to prove to myself that I could do this. And I've done this repeatedly. I did this with green neon tetras in the same tank. There is something in the, in the food, in, in, the, uh, in the leaves and so forth. There's all the organisms which arise as a result of them. So there's a lot to it. And it's a very, to me, that's a very interesting sort of effect. That's why I think a tank filled with leaf litter and decomposing botanicals and stuff would be a great place to raise fry. At the very least, it's a supplemental feeding uh, station for them. Right. Uh, you could certainly feed brine trim and so forth, but the fish are also deriving some additional nutrition from what's naturally occurring in the leaf litter bed. Now, my just argument, like they do in nature. My argument are the kerosens. They're in a mm-hmm. low light environment. They already have the black water to deal with. They have incredible yep. eyesight. We can only see so much. Imagine what they can see at a much smaller level for food. Yeah. I thoroughly believe that they're forager hunters. Like they purposely hit up leaf litter. I've always had that uh, that hard belief, and that really just you know stick proof behind it. Well, you know, you want to go further is if you get beyond the aquarium literature like I do, I geek out on trying to find all these papers and things online, which you can find in Google Scholar. A lot of this, the gut content analysis of fishes like kerosens, which I'm, I'm a huge fan of, is stuff like insects, you know, like, like ants. That's like ants and fruit flies are a surprisingly large amount of the diet. But it's also stuff like detritus. So they're foraging through that stuff. Microcrustaceans like uh, like Daphnia and Chironomid larvae, which is bloodworms. These are the natural food sources of these fishes. So, yeah, they spend a lot of their time foraging, and they are. You're right. They're, most of them are micro-predators. They're, they're not swimming, you know, looking for, you know, pellets of food or tetramen in the water in, in the wild. They're rooting through the substrate, and I think a lot of fishes will do that. Now, the other thing is for shrimp, you said crustaceans themselves. Mm-hmm. I circle myself in a lot of fish goers. You know, our sponsor of the show is Joe Shrimp Shack, and mm-hmm. they go out to all these different shows. Everybody that's doing it right, that's winning the awards, that's doing these individual shrimp, they're all using that, you know, litter bed. They believe thoroughly mm-hmm. in Al- alder cones are huge for it because they expand, yeah. they open packets, and they release so much more than just a single leaf. But even so, they put leaves through their tank. Even Joe, he has his main display cases. And he'll go. He'll feed them once uh, once a week. Sometimes he'll go on vacation mm-hmm. because there's plenty of you know, like you said, detritus, and they're eating away on these leaves. So he's just got to make sure they have a recurring layer of this decaying material in yeah. these two and a half gallon tanks. It's not much. It's just no. a sponge filter, no heater, with a bunch of litter and plants. It's it's and a you, crazy concept. And you know what's cool is if you go into their wild habitats in you know in Asia and so forth. That's what they're doing in nature. They're feeding off of leaf litter. And when we as aquarists are topping off, like what he said, adding more leaves to the tank or adding more twigs or whatever botanically you're playing with to the tank, you're essentially doing what happens in nature, which is things fall off the trees. They get swept into the water. You're actually mimicking the process of nature, not just the look, not just the ability to condition the water, but the, the process by which fishes uh, forage for food, reproduce, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole lot of things that we're actually recreating with surprisingly little effort, you know, when we try to do this. So it's, it's really interesting. And there's all kinds of approaches you can take. Um, one of the approaches that I've been playing with a lot lately and something I'm doing more and more of is, uh, there's a habitat called the Agapo in South America. Those are flooded forests. What happens is it's a forest floor six, seven months out of the year. But during the rainy season, the, the, the streams nearby overflow and they flood the forest. We talked about that earlier in the podcast. And this terrestrial habitat suddenly turns into an aquatic habitat. It's dirty, murky, tinted, and exploding with life. It's completely different than what we've 
envisioned in the aquarium for many, many generations and people haven't been playing with it. So I started doing this. I said, I want to do the whole life cycle. So I started off with a, a, a tank, put some you know soil mixes of, of different types in there, grew some plants. I think it was Acorus, which is a you know, uh, a plant that could withstand desiccation or not desiccation, but drying and, and, and submersion. Right. And even grass seeds, whatever, uh, grew those. Then, uh, let's make a rainy season, start filling it up with water, put some fish in there. You know, in this case, I was playing with South American annual killifish. Then I let the slow, the water slowly desiccate. They were spawning like mad, took the fish out, let it dry out. And now I'm in the dry season. In a few months, I'll add water and see if I can get that whole life cycle going. There's all sorts of things we can do when playing with aquariums that I don't think have even been touched yet. Or if we have, we thought about it, but I don't think we've done it. And that's what I love about this botanical approach is it lends itself to all these kind of cool experiments. And you don't have to be a genius to do it. You just have to do a little research, have a hunch, and go for it. The other thing you have on your list is you know, decor habitat. And the thing I really go after is something like a Siamese uh, algae eater or what they call flying foxes. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they're different species. People confuse them a lot. I love these fish, not only because they're cleaning crews, they are the best single fish that I've ever had to deal with hair algae of any type. Dead, beard algae, black beard algae, any of it. They just mow it down while leaving the other plants alone with a couple exceptions. You know, if they have a, there are certain one plant they might, uh, go after, but it's very few and far between. They'll, you'll see them go after uh, plants at all. Um, this particular species has to be, for captive breeding, injected with hormone to breed. They have really no idea how to accurately reproduce this species to get it to breed. I put them on my uh, planted tanks, and I put an extra leaf litter in. I'm using a lot of different red Ludwigs that we're talking shed like mad. So once I decided, you know what, I'm just going to leave that leaf litter alone. I'm going to quit scooping it out. I'm going to watch my ammonia, and I'm going to add a lot of uh, different elements. At the time, I had a, a lot of almond leaves. I put in some extra um, wood. This was some special type of Malaysian wood that was real. Um, I, had to, I had to weigh it down. It just bled into the tank. And I got them to breed twice. Now, I probably can't consistently do that, but the only time it happened is the moment that they had the leaf litter to rummage around in and these fish by nature hide so when i have a planted tank these are what do you say jimmy five inch fish yes at least they're huge uh, biggie, biggies yeah you'll never see them they're the biggest fish in the tank you'll never see them but when i peek in they're literally flipping leaves or pushing them around like bulldozers playing in them acclimating them to themselves and then they suddenly breed that there's no doubt in my mind that that stimulated some sort of source of instinct for them and that fish I call it structural functionalism. I come up with all these ridiculous names, but that's what it is. You've created a structurally interesting environment for them that mimics something that they must come from in their wild or must be accustomed to because that behavior is probably an adaptation to living in an environment that's strewn with twigs and leaves and so forth, and they've done that over eons. So you're providing them with what they need. Sure, you could breed fish in a sterile tank with you know a glass bottom and, and, a, and a spawning mop or whatever. Or you could try it this way. Now, you can't control it as well, but they'll reproduce. And you might learn a few things. And obviously, you're seeing very interesting behavior with minimal intervention on your part. That's fascinating to me. That's all it takes. And we had um, a couple podcasts now. We had Greg Whitstock, and then we had Ed the Pond Professor on. And you know, when we had Greg Whitstock on, he even mentioned how koi, they're carp. They're just decorative carp. Carp, by their nature, rummage through everything. 
we have carp in Minnesota, and they've been invasive since 1890 when they brought them in uh, different lakes in Minnesota. Uh, for, is the British type of thing that brought them in. They they wanted them as game fish, but those lakes and streams that were crystal clear because all the debris settled at the bottom, there wasn't much stirring it up. The introduction of carp have utterly destroyed those ecosystems because they're rummaging. Now, you can't tell me there isn't other fish that rummage. If you're going to put the this leaf litter in, it's not just single habitat for cover. It's their natural habitat to dig up stuff, to look underneath, to keep finding. I have dojo loaches that I purposely leave a bunch of stuff in there because they're digging under plants. They're continually rummaging through the tank looking for it. And it's I, I think it's a source of entertainment for them, frankly. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. I mean, you're providing fishes stimulation. Fish are social animals. Some are some are shoaling animals. Some are territorial. And, and by giving them those natural types of barriers and natural types of hiding places, there's so much that we can do beyond just aquascaping. I mean, this gets into a whole different thing. That another topic for another time. But aquascaping to me is more than simulating a mountain range underwater or a, you know a, a underwater you know Middle Earth forest or whatever. It's looking at nature as it really is and saying, how could I reproduce this in my aquarium? Granted, growing plants is something that happens in, in the wild. But the wild is more than crystal clear water, symmetrical you know, plants and rocks spaced just perfectly in golden ratios. It's also about randomness. It's about turbidity. It's about things that benefit the fish. Fish live in an area because the environment provides them what they're looking for. It's not vice versa. Plants don't grow to make the fish come to them. The fish come to the plants because there's benefits they're deriving from living there, like you mentioned, they're foraging and stuff. So it's an interesting way when you look at it from that perspective. And I think that's that's as much as anything we're about as it is just, you know, throwing leaves and twigs into an aquarium too. I think that's it's a whole approach, a whole philosophy. Just to recap on the on the again, these are broad spectrum points. Lowers pH yes. naturally. It's bacteria that causes its own biological filter or at least boosts the one you have because you're adding more food to the system to create new types of bacteria. You're having that food web that we spoke of, not only just for the fish species like placos and whatnot, you know, a decavore, but also mm-hmm. for other species such as shrimp or even, you know, the microbiological material that fish feed on. Then, you know, decor and habitat. Is there anything else that we're missing as a core point? Well, besides looking cool with a tea tank. No, I think one of the, the benefits that we're looking at is it gives us an appreciation for the wild habitats that fishes come from. And when we understand it, when we understand that environment and how it functions, we also can tell other people about it. And that puts awareness into the public's mind. And we protect what we love, right, and what we understand. So a lot of these environments that our tropical fish come from are critically endangered by man's encroachment and you know dams and mining and forestry and so forth. So when we understand how incredibly rare these habitats really are and how amazing that they, they evolved the way they did, we could learn a lot about how to protect them. And at least we can have an understanding of the threats they face and, and the challenges that they, that they you know, face. So there's an educational component, too, I think, that, that, that is a core point of this, understanding the wild habitat as it really is. I think that's really important. So I'm going to get in touch with my hippie self, and I want you guys to call <laughs> me out on this, all right? I'm getting a little deep here. I, I, I'm not drinking kombucha. I won't go that far. I have a firm belief, an unsubstantiated belief that I'd love you know, some scientists to uh, prove me wrong or right on. I have a firm belief that as your stomach has probiotics to digest your food, that this is the element for probiotics for a tank, meaning that it not only is, has all these benefits, but that bacteria is one of the best sources to fight off any type of disease. Mm-hmm. I have a firm belief in this that two pieces of the recipe that I've felt for years is decaying plant matter for tannins in the water, 
If you have tannins, you're having the correct food for the correct, what I love to call probiotics in the tank. And salt. People don't use a lot of salt in the tanks or, you know, even small uh, microdosing to add a lot of that to help electrolytes, to ward off disease. Some fish thrive in a pinch of salt, not even when they're not brackish. I just think that those two pieces are core for almost any freshwater tank. Unsubstantiated or anecdotal, it doesn't matter if you're experimenting with them. There's something worth looking at, you know, and these things become substantiated. It wasn't all that long ago that, you know, people said, you can't keep this fish or you can't keep that fish or you can't keep this alive or look what's happened. Look where we are now from where we were 50 years ago and the things that we're doing, the fish that we're breeding and so forth. It's all because somebody had an idea and went for it. You know, somebody tried something a little different, maybe got a little criticism. You know, the, the, the status quo got shaken up a little bit. We have to investigate these new things. Again, my personal frustration with this shallow interpretation of nature they're doing a lot of good because they're getting people excited about the hobby, but they're not really calling attention to nature as it is. And that's the thing that drives me crazy because nature as it is, is, is every bit as fascinating and beautiful as a beautifully manicured, beautifully set up aquarium. I think we can do better. And I think we can take that, take that same talent and try some different things with it. So yeah. now for the listeners that are beginners, because again, we need to cater to those audience. Yes. If they're, yes, I'm sorry. they're just like tannins, you know, I want to give this a try. You, you, you hippies talked me into it. Let's, let's, let's <laughs> what does it take? I don't, I'm not, I, I'm going to start somewhere, right? I got to go research on my own. Again, that was prevalent that you need to go do your own research. But yeah. if I'm going to get started, of course, we told them about that like Enigma pack, but you know, what's the elements, the best elements to get started with the tank? You know, the common things that we see, you know, are like the almond leaves, alder cones i mean clearly you have a, a, a labyrinth of stuff on your website yeah what we do you recommend to get started and what pieces and why you know of, of actual product whether you get it from me or somebody else out there that, that ends up i would probably start depending on the size of your tank i would start with some some basic leaves like catapa indian almond leaves i would maybe look at guava leaves i'd look at if you want to collect your own go collect some oak leaves or some magnolia leaves leaves i think are really a great place to start when you're playing with botanicals because it introduces you to all the things that happen. Things break down. Things recruit biofilms. Um, they can affect the, the pH and the TDS in the water. You know, they, they, So I think leaves are a good starting point. I would start with just about any leaf. I would start with maybe some twigs. I would start with um, um, some of the harder seed pods. Like uh, There's a pod called Kareniana. It comes from a, a, a tree in the Amazon. And um, it's hollow on one. It looks like a little, uh, like a pickle almost, but it's hollow on one end. And the pistogramma love to go into them, and uh, catfish like to hide in them. Those are fun. They're decorative, and they're also interesting. They don't impart a lot of tannins into the water, but that's not the point. They're a structural piece. You could experiment with uh, catapa bark or mangrove bark, all kinds of things that affect not only the water chemistry, but provide that structural benefit. And recruit biofilms, et cetera, et cetera. It's all the same themes over and over and over again. But those are good starting points for me. You could try just about anything. I mean, it, it, you could do all kinds of different things and not really go wrong if you go slowly. Use some common sense. Um, but I think leaves are a great way to start. It's a good way to introduce you. You may not like the look. You may put it in there and say, I don't like things blowing around in my tank. I don't like the way they crumble over time or whatever. Um, and this may not be for you. And I get it. It's not everybody's cup of tea. You know, it's not everybody's idea of beauty. But I would go with leaves because you can easily siphon them out of your tank if you, if you don't like the look and they start breaking down and making a mess that you're not a big fan of. I leave them in there until they break down, but some people don't like that look. I leave them in there until there's just a stem left. Why not, right? That's just because I don't want to get it sucked up in the pipe. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I got a quick question for you, Scott. Is there anything 
that you would consider too dark. I'll, I'll give you, for instance, here. I, I, How black do you like your coffee? Yeah. Right, right. I, I had a 90... 90 gallon cube tank, which I just sold to Rob here not too long ago. Kept a lot of discus in there. My wife loves discus. We had one beautiful piece of driftwood in there, and that thing leached and leached and leached for oh, yeah. five, six years. And finally, our friend Ty came over and said, You know, why is it so dark in there? And, and I go, This thing's been leaching for the last five years. And he goes, Well, there's your problem. You have a bristlenose pleco. Once I took those the bristlenose pleco out, he quit chewing on it. And then all of a sudden, the water cleared up a little bit. Uh, yeah. I mean, is there a point where, where you go, this is too dark, I have to buy a seeing eye dog for these fish? I mean, yeah. I mean, fish are, fish are accustomed to murky waterways and dark, you know, water. I, I, the too dark is is really an objective. It's not really a, I don't think there's an environmental issue with water being too dark. I think it's more of an aesthetic thing. Right. Uh, it's like, how how big is too big a tank? I mean, when you have weather patterns forming in your, you know, living room because you have a 200-gallon tank, that's too big for you. <laughs> it's We're going to talk to Big Rich after this. Yeah. <laughs> it's too dark if you know you 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 drop the siphon hose or you drop a net in the tank and you can never find it again that's too dark you know if you're trying to grow plants obviously if it's too dark and the plants can't even no matter if you're bombarding it with 500 watts of light and you still can't see the bottom it's probably too dark but have you noticed there's like some bacterial issues or risk to the fish or any other cause just strictly from tannins because you can have dark water or orange water from too much ammonia you can have certain tints from other things but this is strictly yeah. just from tannins is there a point I, where I it's have, just, it's just too not. much and risking have, something else yeah no i, I personally have not i'm, I'm kind of a Again, I, I'm a very adventurous and experiment, experimental. I have done my best over the years to try to, it sounds horrible, to try to kill a tank by going crazy, doing all the dumb things people would do. I have not succeeded. Uh, once a system gets, I think, I, I guess the word would be established, this is anecdotal, but I personally believe that botanical aquarium, botanical style aquariums, an aquarium like yours that has a lot of decomposing matter, a lot of material in there, has a bacterial population and maybe a crustacean population that's enabled that's able to process that and i firmly believe that unless you add a huge influx of stuff i don't think there's any long-term detriment as long as you're doing your water changes as long as you're not overstocking you're not overfeeding there's a difference between detritus caused by leaves and botanicals that break down than detritus caused by fish crap or overfeeding you know if you're dumping a half a can of tetramint in your tank every time and it's going right to the bottom it's probably overfeeding, and that's a problem. It's a little different. But well, if you've yet to feed your tetras, I think uh, in that I, th- time, I think yeah. we're good. Yeah, exactly. So we're even. But I think it's subjective. I really do. I think it's everybody has to make their own determination. Just but, comes down to their their pers- personal taste of their coffee. Personal taste. Monitor the water chemistry. If if you find that something's out of whack, well, maybe you need to do a water change. Maybe you need to take out some stuff. You know. But over time, I, I find aquariums to be remarkably adaptable. And reef aquariums. I've spent decades working with reef aquariums, and people kill reef tanks all the time because they mess with it. They don't let nature. What happens is people embrace part of a system. They try. Oh, I'm going to add this. I'm going to add that. And they're not. They're not creating all the components for success, I think, in aquariums, whether it's freshwater, reef, brackish, whatever. You can't do part of something. You can't just have leaves in the bottom and not expect to eat a bacterial population to process, you know, organics. Well, that, the hands-off just... approach and even freshwater ruins freshwater continually. I know people that have killed tanks that pull out their filter, wipe down every asset, let no bacteria yeah. grow on anything, and they're just resetting their tank every time. Right. On the other hand, you know, one can make the argument. I know there's always some guy out there that I never change water. I haven't changed water since night. I mean, a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while too. You know, it's luck. But because you can't just have you know 
never add water to an aquarium and expect to have magnificent results. Some people have crazy results, I guess, but you know, for the most part, um, it's something that we all have to address. Now you're going to kill me. This is the worst thing. I, I can't believe this is happening, but I brought the wrong charger. My battery is down to 5%. I need to run and get my charger. We can pause. Go run. Can we pause? This is not, this, just, this, it's not live. It's live on Discord, but it's, we, we can, we B-roll this. Yeah, the people listening on Discord can suck it. Oh, no. <laughs> we love you all. Jimmy's full of shit. No, that was Adam. Let me just grab that charger. All right, go ahead. So I got a question. You know, we've had people on this podcast that have talked about, about how you don't see ick in nature. For the most part, I wonder if there's any tannins, if he's ever seen ick in his tank. That's the probiotic theory that I got. That's I'm going to ask him this. Right. I'm going to see. If like a say. tank's a stomach. This is the probiotics and the probiotics eat the ick. That's uh, a firm belief of mine. I'm going to. Oh, yeah. You can't be. Told you. All right. I got a quick question for you, Scott. We've had quite a few wonderful people on this podcast and they've, they've said that you don't ever really see ick in nature. Do you feel the tannins? help keep the ick away from the fish what is what is your uh... See, like the probiotic there, conversation i just had oh. like it's eating it somehow you know what i mean there are studies i found a study um done in a, a fisheries uh program in malaysia they were studying what was it tilapia that were being farmed for food production and they found that catapa leaf extract i i forgot what the dosage was it was like 0. 0.50 milligrams per liter some some precise dosage did show some antifungal capabilities. It did uh, work on Aramonas, the bacteria, it kept the bacteria count low, and it protected the resulting eggs from the fish from fungal growth. So there are some anecdotal and some scientific studies that, that were done. Uh, and so there, there are some, some reason to believe that there are some antiparasitic, antibacterial benefits. I would not use the leaves strictly for that and botanicals strictly for that. I think that would be irresponsible for me to say that. But think of it as a preventative, right? There's definitely some potential benefit. Look, the reason why you don't probably get ick in the wild, it, it, there could be many different reasons. There's just in these type environments, there's because not a lot Jimmy of doesn't pee in the water in the wild. That's why. Yeah. Don't believe that for a second. <laughs> no, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, that, that's where I'm going with it. Oh, okay. <laughs> there we go. There's no human intervention. As I remember someone someone told me, you know, don't uh, don't uh, don't drink in the water, fish pee in it. I mean, who knows what's in water? But the bacteria are always present. Parasites are probably always present, but the concentrations are low, and the water's di the dissolution of a huge pond or a stream is so great. It's not like an aquarium where they're in the same body of water. But I but I believe there's some pre preventative benefits for for botanicals. A couple questions that I, I got down the list. Again, these come up top of my head. Some of them no, from, cool. from listeners because this is actually you were requested by our fans. Like I did <laughs> not know about the tent. I started listening like, to the, the podcast, loving the tent, and uh, getting getting kind of deep into it. So I'm happy to have you in the podcast finally. But Thanks. on here, um, the question is when they're preparing these almond leaves. Dried mm -hmm. versus roasted, because I've literally heard that people bake leaves on purpose. Does that break down the leaf and make it no good? Do you just uh, simply dry them? How are these leaves prepared that, you know, how so do you, you sell? That's a good question. No, that's a fair question. Uh, I've never heard of anybody roasting leaves, so <laughs> I, I don't know. They might be smoking leaves. Oh, I've heard, I've heard about yeah. roasting leaves a lot, yeah. actually. Different. I've heard about people getting roasted from leaves, but that's a different story. <laughs> that's that's another podcast. 420 <laughs> already but, passed. We missed our opportunity. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. But no, leaves are collected. I'll, I'll tell you how my suppliers collect the leaves for me. They're naturally fallen, usually from plantation-grown trees, and uh, I have a few suppliers throughout the world. Like for example, one of my guys that I get catapa leaves from in Malaysia, and Borneo, uh, they're they're naturally fallen leaves. 
he lays them out in a in a like a under a shed and dries them out naturally in the dark, not in the sun. They're air dried, and they get kind of a nice texture, and they're they're not quite crispy, but they last really nicely. Uh, and then we we boil them or steep them to soften them, so they'll sink. Number one, and number two, that sort of breaks down the dermal layer, the outer layer, uh, and uh, more easily allows it to saturate and release the tannins and so forth. Um, you know, preparation is a whole art in and of itself. And there's a lot of, in our little community, there's a lot of, you know, a different difference of opinion on that. Some people say, I just throw this stuff in, you know, in nature, leaves fall in the water, they're not boiled. Yeah, true. But, you know, you have millions of gallons of water flowing through something. Um, but leaves, it's important when you're using leaves, uh, that you're using dried leaves or leaves that are, that have naturally fallen because they've depleted their stores of sugar and other materials that would otherwise add an excessive burden to your water quality. So, we, I will be experimenting with naturally with uh, fresher leaves because that's something I've always wanted to play with. But uh, right now, no, we use dried leaves, naturally dried leaves. So when you have your suppliers uh, get your leaves and stuff, mm-hmm. and and they ship you leaves, do you get a lot of crazy looks from <laughs> my mailman, from your mailman, or, or or from the airport or wherever you guys are getting these yeah. from? And do you ever well, just open up a bag, dump it in your lawn, and then make like leaf angels? <laughs> right, exactly. Not with the prices I pay for this stuff. No, but I mean, I, I went through a fair amount of permitting and, um, you know, because some of this stuff is, is agricultural, Department of Agriculture controlled, you have to have permits to import some of it. And some of it, I, I, one of the things I've always tried to make sure is that is that the, the things that we're getting are sustainably harvested and collected. So when, I, for example, the seed pods are not hacked off of, you know, wild old growth jungle trees, they're usually plantation trees. I really got to know my suppliers over the years. And that was really important for me because I like to know who's dealing with it. Like my guy in Borneo, I, we have a great relationship. I could talk to him on, you know, FaceTime and he shows me where he's collecting. What do you think of this, Scott? What do you think of that? You know, so, so it's important to know these people. But um, no, I, I don't get, I used to get funny looks from all my DHL guy, my FedEx guy. They know, oh, another bag of leaves. One of my guys from India sends them and like they, they literally uh, sew a bag together. So every time I get it, it's a bag, like a huge bundle that's sewn in like muslin. And uh, I have to rip out the seams that will get the leaves. It's really a fascinating thing. Uh, other guys just send it in boxes. So, yeah, they get some weird looks, but not as not as much anymore. Now my, my people know me. So you, you got to imagine him in a mailbox just cracking a package open, sniffing it like it's a fine tobacco. I do. I'm just wondering if there's any black suburbans sitting outside your Outside your facility <laughs> yeah. with, no, bin- with binoculars, you know. And uh, One time I purchased uh, from a new supplier in Vietnam uh, some kind of weird bark. I just – I learned about it and then this guy sought me out and I said, okay, this is cool. So, I, you know, I did the study. I I, I thought I, I – I looked at wasn't on the invasive species list. So I got this bark. I got a few pounds of this stuff. It literally looked like something illegal but um, it came through. But in the same box – um, this guy was giving me some bark. Uh, it was a catapa bark and it was confiscated by USDA, which has never happened before because they said it was wood chips. They didn't quite understand what it was. And this guy didn't fill out the customs form properly. So you have to know your supplier. So you do get occasional weird things, but, um, it's interesting. You know, that I, my mail is never dull. There's always something interesting and um, he doesn't deal with Schmelta Airlines like us. Schmelta Airlines probably won't exist after this. <laughs> a lot of airlines won't, unfortunately. You know, and, that, and, that, and it's funny because the COVID thing has affected my overseas suppliers too. Because you know, India was shut down for; they're still shut down for a month. They can't do much. Malaysia has issues. You know, Thailand I think is just opening up again. But, but some of these guys couldn't ship stuff, so 
I was I, I try to like stock up on supplies and I'm glad I do because people, you know, they still play with their hobbies even in the lockdown. So, yeah, you know, I, I we we purchase a lot of stuff from from Seagrass Farms. Mm-hmm. I've been on the phone with them. You know, right now all their shipping is is UPS. So they're the biggest shipper in the state of they're Florida. Great. That's who introduced me to leaves and stuff. My salesperson, Julie, had said, you know, try these almond leaves, uh, try this, try that. And uh, I've just had wonderful success with them and stuff. And, and now it's to the point where Secrets Farms even planted some almond trees on their yeah. property. And they're collecting them and stuff, too. And, and she had said what you just said. Filthy hippies. Yeah, you need to pick them up off the ground and you can't take yep. them off the tree and that sort of thing. And I didn't realize that there would be that much sugar content in a leaf like that. Yeah. Until you just said that. And that's what I love about this podcast is every single time we learn something from somebody that just takes it to a whole new level. And well, I love this. Well, I swear well, I'm going to see you smoke oak leaves. leaves. I'm going to hit you. I'm going to get oak leaves. <laughs> I slept through botany class in college that I sometimes I wish I didn't because there's a lot. I've had to re-educate myself on some of this stuff. But, yeah, it's really leaf drop in, in general. Just natural leaf drop is really fascinating. And how leaf drop occurs in the Amazon, for example. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that you can learn. But. Yeah, just that the materials themselves are interesting. I love that seagrass is growing their own. That's cool. And, and in Florida, they have the climate to do it. In California, right? we, we grow almonds, but not the Indian almond. Well, I think you, you got, was it uh, guava leaves? Mm-hmm. See, you got some of them. But let, that, that spins the point of people that do, do this DIY. Now, me, I've used oak leaves. I haven't taken the time to research if other leaves can be used. So number one, what leaves can be used? What's the do's and don'ts when you collect these things? Okay. The good, great question. First of all, leaves that I could tell you are no, not problematic are oak. You know, there's a wide variety of oaks. You know, again, collect them as naturally falling. Maple. Um, maple, I've never played with. Um, <gasps> ash, I've played with, uh, and they work just fine. So, um, let's see, another leaf that you could use magnolia. You can collect your own magnolia leaves. For some guys, use beech. Uh, some people play with the. Uh, this that's escaping me. There's some other things. You could find your own alder cones. You could find uh, birch cones. But I can tell you categorically, pine is not something I'd mess with because apparently there. And I know this only because people have told me this, and I've researched it. I believe there's some oils or something in pine that could potentially be toxic for fish. And plus, it doesn't look very tropical to me. So even though there are pines that occur in the tropics, but it's, it doesn't have a look. So I wouldn't do pine. Um, hey, you never know. You they know, they might have a bass tank, you know. Yeah, well, the, exactly, exactly. Then the beer cans the go to the bottom. <laughs> the beer cans go to the bottom. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Beer can tank. No, I mean you could experiment with this stuff, but collect it all naturally fallen. Collect it in an area free from agricultural runoff. In other words, if you're down the street from a you know a factory or something, you're not going to grab the even how tempting the magnolia leaf might be sitting in the gutter. You don't know what's run through that. So I would avoid collecting from industrial areas, areas where they're spraying pesticides or herbicides or whatever, uh, agricultural runoff, you know, common sense, not polluted stuff. But um, for the most part, um, you know, if you collect from a, a nice, clean, uh, open space area that legally, of course, so you're not, you know, trespassing or something, you should do okay with that. So what about like barks? Barks a new one for me. I haven't used a lot of yeah. barks. I've used wood with a little bit of bark. I yeah. have not experimented bark. with bark. Love bark, um, particularly catapa bark. There are undoubtedly other uh, types of bark you can use. My experience is with the tropical bark. I haven't tried, you know, oak bark. I, I haven't tried oak bark, but I don't see why it would be harmful. To oak. I use oak twigs. Uh, oak twigs are not a problem. You can collect your own. We, we sell them, believe it or not, but because not everybody has an oak tree in their area, you know. But uh, so I'd imagine the bark would work. We also work with mangrove bark. Now, mangrove is interesting because 
mangroves are protected in lots of places around the world, but the area we get them from in Hawaii, they're invasive. So the city of Honolulu would loves to get rid of that stuff. So we get a bunch of it, help take that off their hands. And the bark and the uh, the wood is really interesting. Here's, here's a small dream of mine, right? I want to create a local tank, right? There's okay. a species that's very pretty, but disregarded as a pest fish called the stickleback. It's very common oh, yeah. in Minnesota. There's a three-spine stickleback. Cool. Yeah. They got a lot of color, a lot of character. They look like miniature walleyes in your tank. They're they're quite oh. fun. And yeah. they have a lot of ranges. You know, it's just not a single stickleback. There's many varieties. And mm-hmm. nothing would please me more than seeing a, you know, like a you know, beer can and all, Minnesota escape with a piece of birch wood with that beautiful white paper, you know, decaying in the tank. But I've always been, you know, scared of that type of bark. You know, that that's a good question. See, me as a as a vendor, I can't sell anything that I haven't experimented with myself and tried to overdo or tried to kill fish. So oh, I that's, can't we need to experiment it. together. That's like a good drug dealer. Yeah, I think you have to just unfortunately maybe get some bait fish or mosquito fish or something. I mean, it sounds horrible as an expendable fish, but I mean, you you almost have to just go for it. Because there's just no way of knowing um, other than unless you know someone that's a botanist that could tell you there's some toxin or, you know, whatever. But for the most part, it's a matter of just going for it. And, and it really is. I mean, regrettably that some fish may die in the experiment. And that's that's rough. I, I love the little alder cones. And yeah. I, I see people selling like regular pine cones, which yeah. to me doesn't seem like that would work very well in your aquarium. But they, they're, they're selling them online and whatnot. Uh, where do alder cones come from? I mean, we don't see those. The alder tree. <laughs> oh, my God. Got no, another seriously. one. Another one is going to get punched in the throat. <laughs> yeah, it's a punch in the throat. But... <laughs> no, but you could actually find – you know what's really funny is, okay, this is how geeked out I am. When I go for a walk, my wife and I like to walk in the neighborhood and so forth. And, and I found a tree the other day. I was, like, looking at these cones on the ground. I was stepping on, what the hell? And I'm like, it's an alder tree. I'm like, what? And I'm buying these from my vendor to get well, – I can collect these. So yeah, you could you'd be surprised what you could find. Um, I, I would uh, pine cones I, again because of the potential for sap or yeah, or that's what I'm thinking. Whatever, I would be freaked out about it. But maybe they know something I don't. I certainly am not Mister Botanical. I don't know everything, but I I know what works for me, and I I do a lot of research. And I had a guy. We sell these things called Casarina cones. They're from uh, India, and. and uh, they're also found in Australia, and I remember getting it just hammered by a couple of guys on an Australian shrimp forum and said, these are toxic. And, da, da, da. and I did a little research, and I've been using them. My customers have been using them for four or five years. And I'm like, they're not toxic. What's toxic is the plant is puts out a, a, a uh, the roots that the plant puts out discourage other uh, – plants from growing in the area so they're toxic to other plants but they're not ichthyotoxic they're not the pine the, the pine the cone itself is no known toxicity i mean i guess you don't want to eat it but as far as for fish now never ever ever had a problem with it uh, pine wood is no good but maybe the maybe the pine cone is good i don't know but i would be a little afraid to overgeneralize so would um black walnuts be because they are toxic to plants would they be toxic to fish or Good. are they not? Exciting? Or just you know, walnuts I'm, in general. Yeah. You know, it, well, walnut shells have been used. Crushed walnut shells have been used by killifish breeders or were used by killifish breeders for many years instead of like peat moss. That you would see them you know, use crushed walnut shells. So 
anecdotally, I would say I don't think the walnut shell is a problem. Maybe the nut has something in it, oil or something or whatever. But no, but I mean, I think with a lot of materials, you can experiment. We can play the, you know, can I use it game all day, but I only got two more. You know, we got a couple of people that are listening live to the podcast right now, and I get this a lot as well. Peat as a substrate for Blackwater tanks, or do you have a specific um, substrate preference for Blackwater? Awesome question. My favorite go-to substrate is Carib Sea Torpedo Beach Sand. I feel like that's a brand. white that's the brand torpedo. Yeah, I use care. I love Carabsy stuff. Not sponsored by them. They don't. In fact, they they actually offer uh, cassava leaves, which is really funny. <gasps> uh, but no, um, I would use. I, I, I love that stuff. Uh, also, one called Sunset Gold by Carabsy, which I love too, um, because it's inert essentially. It doesn't impact the pH of the water, and it looks very natural. Most of the um, Blackwater rivers that you find in South America, for example, run over white silica of various grades. Whereas the flooded forests are soil. So one of the things, one of the, the products we're working and coming out with later in the summer is a, we're doing an agapo soil and a varzea soil. Those are the two types of forests that flood seasonally in South America. So they're based on what are called podzols, different types of soil. So there's some interesting things there. But for my most of my aquariums, I use that sand. You could use peat, sure, but you know I would probably uh, boil it and uh, make sure it stays down and, you know, in the absence of uh, buffering in your water, they could drive the water down, the pH down too. And also, there's the sustainability issue. A lot of people are freaked out about peat. If it's from Canada, Canadian peat is uh, managed sustainably, but peat from other parts of the world is like a finite resource, and it's sometimes uh, you know pulling from that uh, that finite resource, so it could be problematic. I just be careful from your sourcing. Yeah, as my rule of thumb, I always try to do something that's pH neutral. That's always my big thing is any substrate I use, if it's pH neutral, don't care. You know, I can look at yeah. different brands. I can do pool filter sand. It's just I got to have something yeah. pH neutral to start off of. But um, Unless you're trying to get an effect. You know, if you're you trying to get yellow, you go for a beer can. You know what I mean? Right. Well, substrate is every bit as fascinating as any other part of the aquarium. And that's why I've done substrates consisting of oak twigs and just leaves and dirt and all mud and so i think there's a lot to be done there i think we in the hobby of need to do a little more experimenting with that stuff that's a wide open area so the last one that i have from the listener is eucalyptus leaves are toxic but are they yes. a good tannin hmm? you want to put a koala they, bear tea going on <laughs> they they are known to be toxic there's a oil or something and what's funny because i had someone approach me a supplier of these eucalyptus these pods that looked so beautiful and I, oh these are great and you know i researched it and i thought i have people approach me with this stuff all the time hey do you want to carry this whatever uh and i thought this is cool and like he, he came up with some doofus name for it. i don't know what he's calling them like wiggle pods or something I'm like oh, what's a wiggle pod can you tell me what this tree it comes from turned out it came from eucalyptus and eucalyptus is known to be ichthyotoxic so Pets get sick off eating the leaves and so do fish. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to steer clear of that. Killing my customers' tanks outright is bad not, for business. Not not good business. No recurring no, customers. not good. All right. So let's go back to a beginner question. We You gave us some recommendations on what they can use to start producing tannins in their, their tanks. Some good places to start with or even just, you know, having you curate an Enigma pack for them. But yeah. You know, how, do, how does one add it to the tank? Now, I've heard two different ways. Just 
drop it in. Wait for it to seep on its own. Let it decay naturally. Or I've seen people make a literal tea. They take the uh, leaves. They take seed pods. They take the bark. They boil it in a teapot. Make it uh, or hot or pour just hot water. Maybe it's not boiling. And they brew a tea and pour the tea water into the aquarium. You know, well, how do you right. recommend this? Done? Are both methods good? I'm not a fan of the tea for a few reasons because when you're doing it from natural material, when you're doing it from like intact leaves and seed pods, those are things that are collected in the wild. They have dirt, they have pollutants, insects, mold, whatever on them. So when you're boiling it and you're adding that tea, you're essentially just adding all the pollutants that you're trying to get out of those leaves into your aquarium. It's a concentrated solution of pollution. So I would say I would be better off using the actual materials themselves. I would steep them or boil them. And we steep them, A, to clean them up, B, to help them saturate the tissues and sink. And you would start your aquarium, uh, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, for a beginner. If you're going to start with a brand new aquarium, you could add as much stuff as you want, go through the cycle and add your fishes when it cycles. To an established aquarium, you just have to go really slowly, add a few things at a time. We do have a product which is select, we're, we're about to release, which is kind of almost like little tea bags of um, very carefully selected botanical materials and leaves that we know will give you a, a certain look and a, a given size water uh, volume for a period of time. We know that these are clean materials that aren't just collected. They're sort of prepared ahead of time. So we've done a little of the guesswork for you, but I'm not a big fan of the teas because we just don't know how much to add. I'd rather add the material than add the water. I mean, that's why these black water extracts drive me crazy because what's the concentration and how much of what are you adding? So, and you have to constantly re-add because when you're just adding that as a solution, it falls out of solution over time. When you have the material on board in situ in the tank, they're constantly giving off, you know, tannins and humic substances until they're exhausted. So I'd rather add the stuff than the tea. Well, if you ever want to, you know, when you come out the new product, you ever want to advertise, trust me, we would have so much fun talking about tea bags on our advertisement side. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we call them sachets. Come on. That's, that's just going to go over badly. I'm like, ah, no, so it's going to go over perfect. There's no such thing as yeah. bad PR. Come on. I have a quick question yeah. for you. Sure. The, uh, is your lab like your kitchen, and does your wife want to? Does your wife <laughs> well, want to throw you out in the street? My wife is, is the long-suffering wife has been long ago learned to, uh, to leave to, you and your bark alone. To me, I have a special. I have dedicated pots and pans. For, for <laughs> <laughs> I literally go on Amazon and I'm like, oh, this is inert. This is a ceramic pot. I'm excited. It's only eighteen dollars. I have my own stuff, my own Pyrex stuff, so I get to do all the goofy experiments I want in the kitchen. So I'm surprised she hasn't put like a stove out in your garage or something. Why'd you go out there and play? Because I'm sure some of this stuff uh, doesn't smell real good. Believe me, that would be the, the, the ultimate lab, right? You know, it, actually, the neat thing is when you're boiling the, the botanicals or steeping them, they smell amazing. Like people email me all the time. Oh, my God, the mangrove leaves smell so good. They, 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 it's really amazing. It's part of the experience that I tell people is just the smell of this stuff is very earthy. It's cool. All right, so I have a challenge for you. Let's do a swap, right? I will do a tannin tank, right? I'll upgrade mine, do some of the bark, seed pods. I've never done seed pods before. And then you do like an aquarium guy's version, right? Where you have that blue crystal gra uh, gravel, and then nice. you put a figurine of Heisenberg from Breaking Bad and make a meth aquarium. I'm so all about that. I would do that. <laughs> and a beer can. What do I have to keep in it? Glowfish, yeah. Uh, glow only fish. yellow gl glowfish, I think, is the only thing appropriate. <laughs> yellow glow Maybe some glow bettas because that gets people fired up. Right. What about those zebra Daniels that they've done the glowfish treatment with? Those. Are Th that's cool. exactly the perfect one. Yeah, the ones. glow Daniels. Yeah. Right. 
They're very yeah, delicious. A lab biotope aquarium. I love it. One of our uh, fans just put in breaking tank. That's something we don't like to hear. Breaking tank, bad idea. What if we do some like American flag fish, right? With, mm-hmm. you know, unroasted, just raw peanut shells. You and know pist- what I mean? There you go. With some pistachios. <laughs> the planters or, yeah, the generic. It's right. Some, it's a beer pistachios mix. would be great, too. Not the salted ones, like fresh from a farm. You yeah, know what I mean? Salt, the 50% less salt is good. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> For you hipsters. You do a brackish tank with the salted peanuts. So there you go. There you Nothing's go. Wasted. There you yeah. go. You got anything, Jimmy? No, I just we just drove this thing off a cliff here. Right. <laughs> I got nothing. Right <laughs> off to a plantation. Right off to a plantation. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, certainly check out his podcast. It's called The Tint with a period. It'll be in the show notes. You know, like and subscribe. They're fun. It's it's a different type of podcast where he does do the long form podcast again with a guest and go deep dive. But they're just you know probably every other day daily blips where you yeah. talk ten fifteen minutes and you know rem- either remind go over a topic do a little short deep dive on something that uh, either is happening in your life or reminder of the world of uh, tannins. So yeah. you can also go to tannin and find yourself every. Th- different type of thing. You even have shells. It's not just, you know, stuff yeah. for uh, tannin leaching, but, you know, other additives, decoration. Natural materials. Right. So certainly check it out, tanninaquatics.com. Link will also be in the show notes, so give it a click. And uh, really, if you want to give this a try, try that en- uh, Enigma pack. You know, they yeah. get to curate it, they'll hear about your tank, and they'll send you a big box filled with what they think is best for your tank i mean why uh why not try something that's uh, been curated by an expert <laughs> yeah well thanks again a lot of fun thanks again scott and thanks for having me before we kick off the podcast if if anybody's a tent listener I, i've been definitely binging since i've uh started talking to you and you have the best segues at the end of your podcast so if i may <laughs> try to attempt this once uh here goes uh, there we go uh Stay brave, stay thirsty, you know, stay, uh, stay, stay tannin, but above all else, stay wet. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Stay wet. Stay wet. Exactly. Rob's never been wet in his life. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the podcast. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Just damn. <laughs> Thanks, good. Thanks, guys, for listening to this podcast. Please visit us at AquariumGuysPodcast.com and listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. We're practically everywhere. We're on Google. I mean, just go to your favorite place, Pocket Casts. Subscribe to make sure it gets push notifications directly to your phone. Otherwise, Jim will be crying in his sleep. Can, can I listen to it in the in my treehouse? In your treehouse, in your fish room, even alone at work. What about at my man cave? Especially your man cave. Yeah. Only if Adam's there. No. With feeder guppies. No. no. They're endless. You midget loving <laughs> sucking motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll see you next time. <laughs> Later.